Amen. Thank you, Mike. And thanks to our music ministry this morning for an extended time of worship on this Easter Sunday. And now I invite you to open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 7. I have an Easter question for you this morning. The question is, can Jesus ever again rise from the dead? Now, before you answer the question, I know someone here is going to be tempted to say, well, of course, he's God, and he can do whatever he wants to do. So, of course, he can rise again from the dead. But be careful, because the answer to the question is no. Jesus Christ can never rise again from the dead, and the reason for that is very simple. He can never die again. He has risen from the dead in a body that is immortal. Listen to the words of Paul to Timothy. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The glorified Christ said to his apostle John, as John saw him on the Isle of Patmos, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. The body that came out of the grave that first Easter morning was the same body Jesus had lived in those years on the earth. But it was a radically changed body. It is a body that is described in the Bible as an immortal body, which means it is deathless. It cannot die. It is an imperishable body. Now the writer of Hebrews picks up this resurrection theme as he argues for the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, over all things. He writes of Jesus Christ's once-for-all work, using that phrase three times, once in chapter 10, once in chapter 9, and in the text we're going to read this morning, the first time, and we're going to begin reading in verse 24, and then you'll see that phrase as we read further. But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence also he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. 
What Jesus Christ has done for us involves a threefold work that makes possible our part in his eternal kingdom. I want to talk this morning briefly about that threefold work. Work number one is his work of an ultimate sacrifice. Now the context of our text in chapters 5 through 10 deals with the priesthood. Jesus Christ is contrasted in these chapters with the priesthood of the Levites in ancient Israel under the law. The priesthood of Christ is set in contrast to the Old Testament priesthood. A priest's duty is to represent before God sinners who have offended God's laws. As transgressors, they deserve God's judgment, but the priest intervenes with a sacrifice. And that sacrifice absorbs the penalty on behalf of the guilty, and thus the guilty escape judgment. That's because justice was already satisfied at the expense of the sacrifice. Now, in the Jewish priesthood of the Old Testament, they offered up animal and other kinds of sacrifices prescribed by God himself. Their sacrifices did not remove sins, but they did provide an atonement for them. They did provide a covering for the people's sins so that God could remain in a covenant relationship with his people. But a better provision was needed. A better sacrifice was needed that would permanently deal with this sin issue between sinful man and a holy God. Earlier in this same chapter, we read these words in verse 18. For there is a setting aside, that means a legal cancellation of the former commandment. It's talking there about the Old Testament's regulations and its priesthood and its sacrifices. This writer of the book of Hebrews says there was a setting aside of that former system. Because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. God did not establish that system, nor did he give the law in order to provide a permanent salvation. Indeed, he gave us the law that it might bring us to the ultimate sacrifice. And the writer goes on to say in verse 19, And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. We, in contrast to they, under the old covenant. 
And so he says that old system with its sacrifices and its priesthood was unable to bring men to God. Not that it had a problem, but men had a problem. And therefore the law was useless because it could not bring sinners to God. It could only cover their sins. It could not deal with their sins. What was needed was a better hope, a better sacrifice. And he says, we draw near to God through that better sacrifice. Jesus acted as a high priest to offer the ultimate and final sacrifice, which sacrifice was himself. That is most remarkable. The sacrifices of the Old Testament were animals. The priest took the animals that were brought and sacrificed them on the altar. The blood was sprinkled according to the law. But under this new covenant, the priest, the high priest himself, was the sacrifice. Turn over to chapter 9, for example, and look at verse 11. It says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, not of this world, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Look down at verse 26. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he, the Son, Christ, has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time. Chapter 10, verse 12. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14. And by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That is, those who have been set apart for God's purpose. What we learn here in these texts is that Christ's once for all work of sacrifice was accomplished at the cross. He cannot die or be offered again. It is unnecessary besides, but he cannot die because he has been raised from the dead now to bring his offering before God. This work of his offering up of the ultimate sacrifice secures 
the legal ground for our place in God's kingdom. If it were not for that ultimate sacrifice that he offered, we would have no grounds to come before God. But he has provided the ultimate sacrifice. That's the first work that makes possible our place in his eternal kingdom, the ultimate sacrifice, which was himself. Now let's look at work number two. It is an unceasing session. Back to chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. We celebrate today the truth of Christ's bodily resurrection. That resurrection initiated his continuing priesthood. He is perpetually in session as our intercessor. <clears throat> Don't let the word session concern you. It's a word that we still use today. We talk about the legislature being in what? Thank God now it's not in what? We talk about it being in session. It's there for business. What it tells us here is that Jesus Christ is always before the throne of God in business. He's in session. The author of Hebrews shows the superiority of Christ's heavenly priesthood over the earthly priesthood established under the covenant of the law. He tells us in chapter 7 that that priesthood was qualified by its physical genealogy. They were the sons of Aaron, the sons of Levi. But Christ is qualified under a different order of priesthood. And what qualifies him is his indestructible life. Look at verse 16. Back up to verse 15 where it says, And this is clearer still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement or ancestry, but according to the power of an indestructible life. Here we have another order of priesthood altogether. It doesn't make any difference that Jesus was of the tribe of Judah and not of the tribe of Levi. He could not be a priest under the Old Testament system. But no matter, because he is a priest. He is the high priest in a new order that depends not upon one's physical genes, but upon resurrection and because he possesses an indestructible life he is the great high priest who in his second work is always in session on our behalf now as our high priest he is both advocate and intercessor we need both an advocate is one who stands on your behalf before God as your defense. The Lord Jesus Christ is our advocate in accusations. The enemy of our souls comes to God and says, Look at this one who says he is a child of God. 
How can someone like this be a Christian? And who is he talking about? Any one of us. And John says, if any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous One, and he is the propitiation for our sins. In other words, he satisfied the justice of God. And he stands before God as our defense. So when the enemy comes to attack us before God, we have one who is our defense attorney, so to speak. Martha Snell Nicholson captures this so well in her poem entitled, My Advocate. I sinned, and straightway, post-haste, Satan flew before the presence of the Most High God, and made a railing accusation there. He said, this soul, this thing of clay and sod has sinned. Tis true that he has named thy name, but I demand his death, for thou hast said the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Shall not thy sentence be fulfilled? Is justice dead? Send now this wretched sinner to his doom. What other thing can a righteous ruler do? And thus he did accuse me day and night, and every word he spoke, O God, was true. Then, then quickly one arose up from God's right hand, before whose glory angels veiled their eyes. He spoke, Each jot and tittle of the law must be fulfilled. The guilty sinner dies, but wait. Suppose his guilt were all transferred to me, and that I paid his penalty. Behold my hands, my side, my feet. One day I was made sin for him and died, that he might be presented faultless at thy throne. And Satan fled away. Full well he knew that he could not prevail against such love, for every word my dear Lord spoke was true. He is always before the Father as our advocate, and he is always before the Father as our intercessor. He is our assistance in times of temptation. Back in Hebrews, to chapter 2, for just a quick moment, and look at verse 18. It says, For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He tells us that in his suffering in the world, the Lord Jesus was tempted. He was tested. And he passed all of them. All of the tests, all of the temptations he overcame. And now he is qualified as one who has felt what I feel and felt what you feel. To come to our assistance and intercede before the Father on our behalf. What good news is this? That we have one who is un, in an unceasing session on our behalf. And my friend, this work secures our continuance into his kingdom. Robert Murray McShane once remarked, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies 
And yet, he said, the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And he's praying for you as well. His second work is that of an unceasing session. He ever lives to make intercession for us. The third work that I point out is his work of an unlimited salvation. Because of his work on the cross, and because of his work before the throne, because of his work on the cross, and because of his work on the throne, Jesus Christ is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Now, there are three aspects to this third work that I want to point out. I want you to notice in verse 25 it says, He is able to save literally to the uttermost. I think the King James has the better rendition here. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God by him. This salvation that Christ has provided is unlimited in its application. It is a salvation that rests upon his power, not ours. We are not saved because we can perform. We are saved because he is able. It is unlimited in its accomplishment as well. Because this salvation reaches to the sinner's every need. He is able to save to the uttermost. He is able to reach us wherever we are with his salvation. Curtis Vaughn writes, the verb to save here is used absolutely, which means that Christ will save in the most comprehensive sense. He saves from all that humanity needs saving from. Christ's salvation is a complete deliverance no matter what the need of the sinner. His salvation, thirdly, is unlimited in its availability because it says he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Notice there's no limitation here except that one must draw near to God through him. Anyone who draws near to him may be saved. Now, not all will be saved because many will not come to God through him. But all who will come to God through him will be saved and saved to the uttermost. This work, the work of his unlimited salvation, opens the door for our entrance into his kingdom. Today we recognize and celebrate the work of Christ in his death and resurrection. The work of his ultimate sacrifice, which lays the legal foundation for our part in his kingdom. The work of his unceasing session, which secures our continuance in his kingdom. That nothing can separate us from the love of God. Jesus prays in our behalf. He's our advocate. The work of his unlimited salvation, which opens the door for our entrance into his kingdom. I began this morning with a question. Can Jesus Christ ever again rise from the dead? But now I close with a question as well. 
Have you, by faith, drawn near to God and entered the gates of salvation opened by Christ's sacrifice? Have you done that? Erwin Lutzer, in his book, How You Can Be Sure That You Will Spend Eternity With God, reminds us that in Michelangelo's painting of the final judgment, the expressions on the faces of those who are about to be judged reflect uncertainty and fear. No one in the fresco except the Virgin Mary knows his or her fate. And then he poses this question, what expression would be on our faces if we knew that, say, in exactly one hour, we would be face to face with God? Did you notice the statement that we read from chapter 9 that says, It is appointed unto men once to die. It is though there's a great calendar in heaven, an appointment calendar. And on that appointment calendar is your name beside a minute and an hour and a day. When you will die and stand before God. And at that moment when death comes, your relationship to God is forever fixed. In other words, if when that moment comes you are separated from God still by your sin, then you will forever be separated from God and spend eternity in hell. On the other hand, when that moment comes, if you are related to God because you have drawn near to God through Christ, forever that relationship is fixed. As we celebrate resurrection, it is not a bad thing for us to think about the fact that someday we're each going to die. As Samuel Johnson said, nothing focuses the mind like the knowledge that one is to be hanged. And nothing focuses the mind on Easter like the knowledge that someday each of us, too, will pass through the portals into eternity. And so I come back to that question, have you drawn near to God through Jesus Christ by placing your faith in him? And if not, why not today? Why not make that decision today to come to God through Jesus Christ and receive the gift of salvation that he purchased with his own blood on the cross? Let's pray. Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit will work in the heart of each one of us, either bringing assurance that we have drawn near and that we are in the kingdom of God, kept in the kingdom of God by Christ's intercession on our behalf, or conviction that we need to do this very thing. And I pray that for those who have conviction that they need to draw near to God through Christ, that today they will choose to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing in closing a verse or two of 390.
342. You probably don't need the hymn. It's the familiar one, Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. Lamb of God, I come to thee. And as we sing this hymn, if you are one who has professed faith in Jesus Christ privately, but you have never openly acknowledged it before others, I want to invite you to come. Or if you have never made that decision to trust Jesus Christ, but today you want to do that, you're today drawing near to God through Christ, I invite you to come to make that decision public before others, which would please the Lord. As we sing this hymn, and we're going to stand right now, and I invite you to stand, I invite you also to come and to meet me here in the front. If today you would take Christ or publicly profess Christ as your own Lord and Savior. Yeah.